Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You ever been angry? Anyone? Right? Ever got angry when you were cut off in traffic? Ever got angry with your spouse? Thank you. We could all say that. Ever been angry with your coworker? Ever been angry with a neighbor? Ever been angry at a parent? Ever been angry at one of your kids? I have five children. Means I'm continually angry. I'm joking, kind of. Does get me when I've got to put the same kid down eight times in the same night. Like, come on, stay in bed, right? Ever got angry at a teacher? All of us, right? You ever call somebody a fool? Jesus says you're going to hell. It's right there, right? Like, whoa, I call people morons so I don't break this rule, <laughs> right? If you didn't raise your hand or admit to it, you're Jesus, okay? So what is happening in this verse? If you were here last week, Jesus is driving at something. So in verse 17, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm not a deconstructionist. I'm not eliminating the Old Testament. I came to fulfill the law. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the checklist religious people. The 613 do's and don'ts of the Old Testament, they had them memorized and they could say, I did every single one of those. And Jesus says, that's not enough. Your righteousness has to exceed the marking off of a checklist of religiosity. So how in the world, the people would say, could our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? They were top dogs right here. Jesus is going to be laying out, here's how you do it. And I just call these verses anatomy of murder, right? This is the anatomy of murder. This is how murder happens. 
Like big picture for a moment, step back and look at the Bible. How did we get into the mess that we're in right now? Yes, Genesis 3, but what happens in Genesis 4? Cain murders his brother Abel. And after that, that empowers a really a psychopath, a narcissistic, polygamous psychopath named Lamech to murder somebody for wounding him. And then he says, if anybody tries to get back at me, I'll kill 77 more. He's like the first mass murderer right there. This is how we got into the, the mess we're in right now. So the point of this text is real simple. In the kingdom that Jesus is coming, relationships are the priority. The old kingdom was don't murder people. The new kingdom is you must be reconciled. Does that exceed murder? Absolutely. Is that better than just not murdering somebody? Yes. Is that stronger? Yes. Is it harder? Absolutely. So let's look at it. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, right? That's in the 10 commandments, Exodus 20. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Every one of us would agree with that. Worldwide, history-wide, with very few exceptions, every society says murder is wrong. And if somebody murders, something needs to happen to them. They need to be judged. I think every one of us would agree with that. If you murder somebody, you, you need to go and whatever the penalty is going to be, there has to be a penalty for murder. We all agree with that. No problem. Okay, yeah. But then Jesus says, verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What did Jesus just do right there? He made the penalty for being angry the same penalty for murder. Did you see that? Exactly the same, identical wording. Whoa, it's shocking. Why does Jesus do that? Because they come from the same source. All murder is, is matured anger. That's all it is. That if we allow our murder or our anger to just keep doing what it's going to do, if we allow it to run its process and run its thing, we are going to end up murderously hearted kind of people. Well, how does, murder, how does anger do that? Well, number one, Jesus says, if you're angry, like the, the beginning step is getting angry. Anger, do you know it's one of the most universal emotions? Like some societies are much more sober, like they don't laugh a lot, but every society has anger. And usually we're angry because we're slighted in some way. Because somebody said something to us that we don't like because they did something that we didn't want them to do. They didn't do something that we expected them to do. They broke our trust. There's some reason that we say, okay, we are angry with them. That's step one. But notice Jesus brings in step two. But I say to you that everyone's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Step two is you insult them. So now it's, you're angry at them because of something. You feel slighted in some way. And now when you hear their name, what do you do? You got to insult them somehow. You have to tear them down. Oh, he's not that great. Did you know he got arrested? Did you know he got sued? 
You know, he went bankrupt. Do you know he beats his dog? Just anything to just kind of bring them down some kind of level, right? Do you know what he said to me? Do you know how he, right? That's what we insult them. And Jesus says, when you do that, you're in danger of the council. It's the Greek word Sanhedrin, the highest court in Israel. So Jesus, modern, would say this. When you insult somebody, you're going to the Supreme Court. Like that's like, what? That got really, really elevated quick. And then step three is you call them a fool. This is when you demonize them. Not they acted foolishly, they are a fool. It's no longer an action that you say is wrong, it's their core character is wrong. They are bad. They're no longer image bearers of God. There's nothing redeeming in them. They are fools. They're worthless and society would be better off if they weren't around. My life would be better off if they weren't around. It's not that they lied, they are a liar. And Jesus says, and when you do that, he says, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. The word hell there, you probably know this, is the Greek word Gehenna. It actually is referring to a valley just outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hell. Last time I was in Jerusalem, I walked through this valley so I can with integrity say, I have been through hell. Like literally, I've been through hell. And the connotations of the Valley of Hinnom were very bad because there's this king named Manasseh, one of the worst kings in Israel's history, who in the Valley of Hinnom set up this god named Moloch, and Moloch required child sacrifice. And the book of 2 Kings 21 tells us that Manasseh offered his son as a sacrifice in the arms of a red-hot Moloch. And then in Jeremiah, Jeremiah was there when Babylon comes and actually disciplines Israel for their waywardness because of what they had been in, because of child sacrifice. And Jeremiah says the dead bodies of all the people were stacked in the Valley of Hinnom. In Jesus's time, because it was so bad, it had that bad connotations to it, it became the village dump. So Jerusalem would just put all their garbage there and there was a smoldering fire there all the time just burning garbage 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's a bad, bad place. Just the name would kind of bring up an image in your head. It'd be like me saying Auschwitz, right? That name has with it all this kind of connotation of evil and death and brutality and bad, right? That's Gehenna. So Jesus gives this anatomy, like you get angry, then you start insulting people. Then you start demonizing them and then you light a new hell on earth. That's what you do. And the kingdom that Jesus is coming is opposed to that. So what do we do? Well, Jesus always gives a little so, right? He did it when it came to fulfilling the law, like look out, don't take away the least of these. So, verse 23, here's what you do. Two things. If you're living in the kingdom, and you find yourself angry and unreconciled, you gotta be proactive, you gotta be prompt. Verse 23, proactive. So, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, did you catch that? I'll read it again, see if you can catch that. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, not, I'm mad at that guy. What is it? You're sitting in church and you think, man, that guy might be mad at me. Right? It's the opposite direction. This is way harder, isn't it? They're mad at me. Not I'm mad at them. You got to deal with that as well. This is one step further, one step more. It's that, it's that deep of the kingdom. This is you're in church and God's spirit reminds you, hey, that person out there might have a problem with you. Right? How proactive is that? How incredible is that? And if you feel that, here's what Jesus says. Leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, promptly. Don't wait, don't think about it, promptly. Leave church right in the middle of church and go be reconciled, right? I'm in church and I think, man, somebody's mad at me. Somebody's got ought with me. Maybe a bad business deal. Maybe a church split that I was involved in. Maybe they're thinking that I gossip about them or I sold them a lemon of a car, whatever it is. Proactively, you get up, you've searched your soul and you go take care of it. Not how I've hurt somebody, not how, excuse me, not how they have hurt me, but how I could have potentially hurt somebody. That's crazy, isn't it? They might be mad at me, so I get up and leave church. If right now we thought about, man, anybody throughout all of our years that might be mad at us, and the moment that name comes to our mind, we leave church, how many people are left here? Right? This is radical. What Jesus is saying is radically reconciliation in the kingdom. And for us, it might be a text like, hey, can we get together? It might be a phone call. Hey, I remembered this. Do we still have a problem about that? Right? That might be what we do. Not to Jesus's audience. Jesus says, when you're before the altar, where was the altar? In the temple. Where was the temple? In Jerusalem. Where is Jesus teaching right now? He's up by the Sea of Galilee, at least a four or five day journey. So Jesus is saying to people that would immediately register this, all right, I've got my little lamb or my goat, my sacrifice. I've made the travel four or five days down to Jerusalem. I've waited in all the lines. They finally get up to the altar. I'm at the altar. At the altar, I finally remember, man, Simeon might have a problem with me. Goodness. Hey, high priest, would you hold my goat? Takes off, right? Four or five day journey home, find Simeon, reconcile with Simeon, however that long, long that takes, turn around, walk four or five back, days back down, wait in all the lines, come up to the high priest and be like, hey, do you sell my goat? No, he ate it. Oh, now I'm mad at you, right? Because reconciliation is never a five-minute job. It might take you five days or five weeks or five months or five years. That's why, and they would get it. Reconciliation is never easy. There's hardly anything more difficult in the human experience 
than reconciling with somebody that's angry with you. And they would get that. That's gonna take a lot of effort. What Jesus just said, it's gonna take me a lot of time. And Jesus says this because anger is a source of so many problems. And Jesus' commands are always to set us free, right? They're always to set us free. That when we don't reconcile, when we're not doing that, Jesus says really two things. He uses two analogies. When you allow anger just to sit in your heart, number one, it puts you in prison. Has this analogy of like, hey, you meet somebody, they take you to court, you use your hands you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and the guard puts you in prison. That when we refuse to be reconciled, it, it's, it's a prison of itself. Do you know that? Psychologists have studied this. And when we have a ought with somebody, when we have this unreconciled issue with somebody, what happens is this, our free time is taken up with that issue. So you're on your lawnmower, or you're driving your car, or you should be pushing your kid on the swing, and all of a sudden, the thoughts of that event come into your head. And then it is an entire, whatever it is in you, it is a 20-minute, 30-minute discussion in your head that the moment it gets played, unless you, they say you have 15 seconds to interrupt it. If you do not interrupt that thing that we play, that tape, whatever you want to call it, that podcast, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, if you don't interrupt that in 15 seconds, you're gone for 20 minutes then. It takes you in its own strength, its own power, and you just lost 20 minutes. And you do that two or three times a day. You do that when you wake up in the middle of the night. You do that as you're trying to go to bed at night. You can't go to sleep. Man, it's a prison of your own making. That's what Jesus is saying here. When you're not reconciled, you put yourself in prison. You lose hours of your day to this thing that you replay and replay, and all you do is you drive it deeper and deeper into your brain. It's, it's, it's a barbed hook that the harder you push and the deeper it goes, that's how much more difficult it is to pull that thing out. I think every single one of us should always be suspicious of our anger. The moment I feel that emotion, I should immediately say, why am I angry right now? Why am I angry? Well, don't they know who I'm, I am? They can't treat me like that. Yeah, that's not a good reason. Well, if this gets out, this will ruin my reputation. It's already ruined, forget it. Right? If these idiot drivers would just get on my way, I'd be fine. You know it's a problem when your kids ask your wife, hey, mom, why are all the idiots out when dad drives? Right? Guilty as charged. Why am I so, right? Why am I angry? Because I'm late. Why am I late? Because that moron in front of me at McDonald's wouldn't order fast enough. They want to make small talk. It's fast food for a reason. Get out of here. Right? We all have, what, what? Always the initial reaction of a believer should be unbelievable suspicion of my anger. Why am I angry right now? Jeremiah 25 says, you're angry because of your own, you're after your own glory. Is it my glory that I'm angry about? Because that's not a good reason. We should be, the key to unlocking the prison of anger is to be suspicious of your own anger. Hold on, time out. What am I actually angry about? What have I done to cause this? What's in me that's broken first? What's the beam in my own eye? So it imprisons us, but then 
you become a debtor, it says. Truly, I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. It extracts from us. It owns you. That anger can own you. Like a, a current idea right now is that we're supposed to express, like just pop your top, express your emotion. Just let it go, right? The Bible says this, that you and I have been given God's spirit and the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and self-control. That we're not, it's not self-expression. That's not the believer. The believer is self-control. Here's what I've found. The more you express an emotion, guess what happens to it? The stronger it gets, right? If you decide, man, I'm gonna express my anger. I'm gonna tell this person, you know, how I feel about that other person. And man, they did this. Do you, what, what happens in the moment? Then you just let it all out. What happens? Do you have a joy indescribable? Do you have a peace that passes all understanding? No, you get angrier. The red starts to creep up your neck. Your blood pressure shoots up. That's what happens. Expressed emotions are amplified emotions. That's what happens, okay? The, the Bible says you have self-control. We, we're in control of that. I'll give you two examples. I've used these before. I'll keep using them because they're so good. One was in an article I was reading that took an excerpt from this book from a counselor. And this counselor was dealing with his dad that kept losing his temper with his son. And his wife was like, I, I can't have it anymore. You gotta stop this. You gotta stop yelling and screaming at our son. You can't do this anymore. Knock it off. I can't do it. I can't control it. He just gets me. Had all the excuses. So they went to counseling. The counselor starts to talk with him. And after about the third session, he realized this man is super rich and he loves money. So on the fourth session, he said, I've solved your problem. And the guy's like, great, man, I'll do anything. I just don't want this to happen to him anymore. I'll do anything not to get angry at my son anymore. He goes, great, here's what you do from now on. And the wife was in with him. He says, every time you lose your temper, you write a check to your wife for $4,500 and she gets to spend it any way she wants. He was cured. He was confronted with something he loved more than his anger and he was cured. We got self-control. The other one was my daughter. One of my daughters, all my kids are great, but they're kids, right? And my daughter's having a moment, a meltdown, and like, my wife's trying to calm her down. I go up, I try to calm her down. I can't, I can't, right? She's just, I can't calm down, I can't, can't. Well, there was a boy that she kind of liked at that time. So one of her sisters, as we're trying to calm her down, she's like, ah, just throwing a fit, she can't calm down. One of the sisters, her sisters, came into the room and said, let's say his name is Bill. She said, he, she said, hey, Bill's at the front door. Man, that daughter jumped, oh, hold on, I'll be right there. And then my daughter's like, psych, she's not here, he's not here, right? Just a total joke. But the moment it came in, she could control herself. And I've used that on her over and over. Wait a second, remember Bill. Remember Bill. You can have self-control. You can do it. If you don't want to be in prison, and you want to be a debtor, man, have self-control. But backing up, you look at this and you're like, why is Jesus so intense on anger? It's the first thing he talks about. He's going to talk about a lot of controversial things. If you've read ahead, I hope you have. Lust is next week. Oh, that's going to be fun, right? Divorce is the week after that. Oh, great. Oh, retaliation. Like it's just top 10 hardest messages right here but he begins with anger. Why is Jesus so intense on anger? Why does Jesus equate anger with murder? Why does Jesus say, listen, 
If you're in church, a good spot where Jesus wants you to be, if you're in church, but you've got this kindling fire of anger, someone's angry with you, get up and leave church right now and go take care of it. Whoa, right? Why is he so intense? Like this has puzzled Christians for a long time. If you have a King James Version Bible, maybe you saw this. I don't know if we got the slide slipped in. Yes, no? I don't think we did. No, okay. If you have a King James Version, verse 22 in the ESV says this. I'll just read it. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. King James Version adds a little phrase. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother without a cause shall be liable to judgment. We had this thing called textual science, where you look at manuscripts, and, and the King James is, is based off some fourth century manuscripts. We know in the fourth century, somebody added in that little thing without a cause. Jesus couldn't possibly mean like, if I have the right to be angry, I got the right to be angry, right? And I like that version better. I want a cause. I've got a cause. I get to be angry. No, someone slipped that in there, because the manuscripts that are hundreds of years earlier than that one, don't have that phrase in there. There isn't an out for us. There isn't a without cause. Jesus is serious, murderously, dead serious about anger. Why? Let me give you a reason. And I shared this just over a year ago, maybe 14 months ago. And it was something maybe I'm gonna repeat every single year because it might be that important. But there's this great verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. It says this, be angry, fascinating, and do not sin. Fascinating, right? You could do a whole message on this. So be angry. Being angry is not wrong. There's a way to be angry that's right. There are certain things that should make you and me angry. That anger is simply a neutral emotional energy. That's what it is. And it can be used for good or evil. So an easier one is laughter. Is laughter good or bad? Yes, right? Laughter can be great. It actually causes you to get closer to people. If you're having a great meal and you're retelling funny stories and you're laughing and so food comes out of your nose. That, that society, like sociologists have found, you, you're drawing closer to those people through laughter, right? Brilliant, beautiful gift from God. We are the only creatures that laugh. Awesome. But can laughter be damaging? Oh yeah, schoolyard, school, schoolyard bullies use it all the time, don't they? To make fun of, to belittle, to put down. Same emotion, but used cruelly. Anger is the same thing. And anger and love, they're really Siamese twins. We often get angry at things that we love. That's why we get angry. Something that we love is threatened. If it's my daughter or my wife, man, that's a good thing. But there's a lot of dumb things, <clears throat> selfish reasons why people get angry. And it's unhealthy. So I love the beavers. And I get angry at every team that's better than them. Anger and love, Siamese twins. 
So be angry and do not sin, right? But then it goes on. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here's the way that you don't sin with anger. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, right? Oh, why? It feels good, man. It feels good to go bed angry. <laughs> why don't you do that? It tells us. And give no opportunity to the devil. That's why. Anger is to be like a 50-yard dash. Boom, you're done with it. Psalm 30, verse five says, God's anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. It's moment, it's quick, right? It's not an ultra marathon. Those are satanic. 50-yard dash, in and out, quick, and we're done, and it's over. That's the way you keep it. And here's why. Anger is like acid. It begins to bore a hole in your soul. That's why. And when it does, the enemy has entrance into your life. And I shared this 14, 15 months ago, whenever it was. Uh, there's a guy that, man, just treated me worse than anyone else has in my now 51 years of life. No one was worse than him. And I tried everything in my power to make peace with him. Did everything else, just didn't matter. People were telling me, don't do that, man. That's just, I said, I don't care. I want peace. Peace, it, peace is costly. I don't care if this costs me. I'll do whatever. And the enemy's like, I just can't forgive you. I said, well, I don't think I did anything in the first place, but it didn't matter. I'm like, okay. So Romans 12, 18. With all that lies within you, if it is possible, be at peace with all people. Some people, it doesn't matter. You can give and give and give and give and give. And that's what I tried, clear conscience. I gave everything I could. But for some reason, he couldn't let it go. So it felt like every six, eight, nine months, he'd back up a trailer of new junk and just push it out into my life. Like, what? How is this coming back again? And this happened probably six times. And here's what I noticed. Every time that that happened, every time that it was kind of like just shoved back into my life, like, oh, great. For about two weeks, I was off. I just was like, peace set at edge. Trying to just still think, it just, it would capture my thoughts. It was uh, affecting the way that I related to people that I love around me. You know, just there was, I was, I was thin is the best way I could put it. Normally, the cushion that you have in life, it just thinned way down. And I didn't have the cushion that I normally would have. So it was just kind of like, uh, it ate at me. And then the last time it happened, almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, I happened to be thinking about this text right here, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. And like few times have happened in my life, God just said, Here's what's happening to you, Matt. You're allowing this anger into your heart and it's burning a hole and now Satan's coming in and he's using you and he's hurting you and hurting the people that are around you. And it was like an epiphany. And I prayed right in that moment, I confessed I'd been harboring anger and I was set free. It's hard to explain 
man, I started sleeping better. I was back to sleeping better. My teeth didn't hurt from whatever, you know, you're grinding your teeth at night. All those, it was just gone. I was like, wow, no free rent. And I started this practice. I started to pray blessing upon that man. Just every single time that that thought would come up and try to get me to replay the tape, I'd immediately say, no. And I pray God's best on him, his blessing on him. Absolutely, just, that stops the tape right there. You can't play anymore. Not when you're praying blessed. Probably outside of my kids, uh, Edgewater and my wife, I prayed more blessing on that man than anyone else from that time forward. Just constantly, uh, everything's forgiven. Everything's been covered by the blood of Jesus. I won't let this thought capture me anymore. Oh, I tell you, it set me free. It was amazing. Oh. Anyone struggle with that? Men, do you struggle with that? Where slights from years ago still come and live in your head for free rent. Where they allow, we allow that anger in it, just kind of, it, it, we know it's caustic. Anger should have a warning label on it. Handle with care, caustic. Be warned, right? Because what happens is the people that we love that are around us end up getting the blowback from it and they get hurt from it and they get damaged from it. And dark powers end up coming into our lives and using us as tools. We give opportunity to the devil. That's what happens. I think it's why Judas betrays Jesus. If you know the end of his life, they're at a dinner and a woman breaks some costly ointment and puts it on Jesus's feet. And there's one of the disciples that's like, that shouldn't have happened. That's expensive. It should have been taken and sold and the money given to the poor. You know who said that? Judas. And Judas gets rebuked by Jesus. And if you know the scenario though, that, that if you line up the gospels, it says Satan entered Judas after that and he wouldn't betray Jesus. I think Judas was mad at Jesus. How can you rebuke me in front of all these people? What about my reputation, right? He, 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 that's, he doesn't have the right. That's what should have happened with that, right? I think it happens to King Saul anointed by God, given God's spirit, prophesies. He's one of the prophets, right? And then there's this time that Samuel's late. And Saul is watching his army disappear. And Saul's like, I, I, I just have to make this sacrifice. I can't wait for Samuel anymore. He makes a sacrifice. And Samuel comes and says, because you have done this, the kingdom is being taken from you. And it's gonna be given to somebody else. And you watch Saul's life from that point forward. I think he was angry at Samuel. Samuel should have been on time. Samuel caused this problem. And it says this, God's spirit was taken from Saul and an evil spirit came into Saul. So evil that he tries to not just kill David, he tries to kill his own son. That's how angry he gets. That's, how, that's why Jesus begins with anger, because it's caustic because it'll damage you, because it gives opportunity to the devil. And I think there are people like me sitting out right now in these chairs. Let's let the sun sit on our wrath, and that anger has burned a hole into us, and now the enemy has access to us, and it's affecting the people we love, our kids, our spouses. Man, it imprisons us. It makes us a debtor to itself. It's poison. That's what it does. It just imprisons and poisons you. 